Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 203 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week I was joined by our very first wildlife photographer on the podcast. Welcome Daniel Dietrich to the show. And thanks to listener Keith Flood for connecting us. I really appreciate it. Daniel is a wildlife photographer living in Point Reyes, California, and focuses a lot of his work on the wildlife native to that area. He is the founder and executive director of Conservation Kids, a nonprofit that he set up to give kids experiences in nature with cameras. Daniel sits on the Ethics Committee for the North American Nature of Photography Association and on the Board of Directors for the Environmental Action Committee. Daniel and I take a lot of time to unpack some of the more common ethical considerations in wildlife photography, including some that are very familiar and quite controversial and newsworthy more recently in the photography community. I hope you'll enjoy our crossover appreciation of shared topics and issues that bleed into both landscape and wildlife photography and Daniel's perspective from his worldview. Over on Patreon this week, Daniel and I discuss what he thinks makes a good wildlife photograph. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our newest patrons, Lawrence Pallant and Krista McCuish. Your generous support is greatly appreciated. And thanks to Matt Jackish for your super awesome donation. You are awesome. Lastly, thanks to all of our sustaining patrons over on Patreon. You are all helping keep the show running. Please reach out at any time if you want me to read something on the show that could help you. I'm here for you. Cheers. All right, let's get to the show. Awesome. Daniel Dietrich, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You're joining us all the way from Point Reyes, California. Is that right? Yes, Point Reyes, just about an hour north of San Francisco, a nice little slice of California coast just outside the big city. Uh, sounds sounds wonderful. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, so this is going to maybe sound kind of wild, uh, no pun intended, or maybe a pun intended, but you're the first wildlife photographer we've actually had on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Honored to, honored to be the first. Yeah, awesome. Well, for, for people that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a full-time wildlife photographer and cinema, uh, cinematographer living up in Point Reyes. Um, so I do a variety of, of photo things to try and earn a living to, to put food on the table for the two little kids. But um, you know, a wide splash of, um, of wildlife photography, cinematography. I also guide here in Point Reyes. There's a national seashore that's, that's just an hour north of San Francisco called Point Reyes National Seashore. It's not a, um, it's not a super known um, sort of national, national. It's not super known nationally, but it is a national park. Um, it's got a nice long coastline with lots of lots of beaches, and it's it's really quite beautiful. And it's got a really pretty amazing um, array of wildlife here, from from the ocean critters with uh, with whales and and dolphins and porpoise, uh, elephant seals, sea lions to terrestrial critters like bobcats and coyotes and badgers and foxes. So it's a a pretty amazing place, and um, I guide here, and I take amateurs and, and professionals alike out to look for specific animals. So that's a good chunk of my time. Um, I have my own nonprofit as well um, called Conservation Kids, and oh, cool. we uh, we connect kids to to the environment through the use of photography. So it usually involves um, some classroom time uh, pre-COVID. So we're, we're we're pivoting a little bit now, but um, 
getting kids um, into the classroom, talking about conservation and conservation photography and how one photo can really change the world. Um, and then we get out into nature and take a bunch of photos and everybody gets a camera and a lesson and, and then we go out and shoot the rest of the day. We post-process all the images, put them up on, on the website and, and uh, people can buy them and then the money goes towards uh, towards conservation organizations. So I spend a bit of time on that, um, and a bit of, a bit of um, speaking, a bit of... Uh, the selling photos and so yeah all things all things wildlife related to to try and put it all together so it sounds like you are following the advice i would give to anyone wanting to go pro which is have lots and lots and lots of irons in the fire <laughs> it's true right i mean you know wildlife photography and cinematography is so competitive right there's so many people and uh, you know so many professionals and then and then tons and tons more of, of of people, you know, advanced amateurs and amateurs who just love it. And so, you know, there's, there's only so many magazines and, and, and sort of TV outlets that, that things can go into. And so there's lots and lots of competition. So really hanging your hat on, on one specific thing is really tough. And so it's for the guiding and, and, and the selling and the filming and, and the writing and all that stuff comes together just as, as many sort of verticals as you can to, to make it all work. Yeah. Well, I did not know about the conservation kids uh, part of your part of your story, and now I'm really curious about that because uh, you might not be aware of this, but um, me and a group of about ten other photographers here in Colorado helped start an organization called Nature First Photography that's all about <clears throat> promoting, I guess you could say, conservation type topics around photography, but it's more about just trying to get people to be more respectful of nature as photographers in the field. And so one of the things I've always said is that the key to all of this is to educate young people. So I'd love to hear about how you got kind of got into the idea of doing conservation kids. Oh, wow. That's really cool, man. I didn't, I didn't know that either. This will be yeah. interesting, interesting <laughs> to be able to chat about that. Cool. All the homework prior and we didn't, and we missed a big one. I know, right? <laughs> Classic. Well, that's what makes it fun, right? A little more spontaneous and, uh, and gives us some, something else to talk about. So yeah. Yeah. I had this, I had this idea for conservation kids a long time ago, um, years, maybe a decade ago even. And I was, I was, um, I had this base that the sort of original idea was to, um, was it, it had an international flavor to it and it was to go to a, go to a country where, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of technology and it was a bit poor and, um, and bringing cameras and, and teaching kids about photography and letting them go out and shoot photos in their, in their villages or in their, their sort of the, their neighborhoods. And then, um, taking those pictures and, and having an international show and, and selling those pictures internationally and then having that money go back to a, to specifically to a conservation project within that, within that community. So whether that was water-based or, or, um, you know, cleanup based or um, whatever the need for that sort of specific community was. And so that was the original sort of idea that I had about 10 years ago. And I, I started looking around and just researching existing nonprofits to see if I could fit in with one. Um, wasn't necessarily looking to intentionally start one myself, but I was looking right. at the idea would fit in with, with another nonprofit. And I found, I found quite a few of them um, that, that sort of were in that space. And I talked with several of them to see if there was a, you know, an arm out of that, out of that um, organization that, that would make sense. And um, it, nothing really ever fit. And so I, I just sort of 
thought, oh, how can I do this on my own? Then, or maybe I can start it on my own with a, with a group of friends or what have you. And so, um, so I, I kept sort of baking the idea and then life would take a turn and it would take me another six months to think about it again. And then a year would go by and, and I just, um, I just sort of, um, a, a, a flip switch one day and I just said, man, I, I haven't done this, this thing. And I've really been thinking about it for a really long time. And so I really need the spark and this motivation. And I was just starting uh, point race safaris at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of my early guests, an amazing man and, and now a great friend, and his, he and his wife have a nonprofit for kids in the, in the, in the art, in the sort of art world. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him about my idea for conservation kids. And I said, I'm, I'm back on it. I'm really excited about it. And, um, and he was super stoked and super supportive. And, and he said, all right, Daniel, he's like, here's your motivation. He's like, I'll be your first donor if you get this thing go- up and going here real soon. <laughs> oh, I was sweet. just like, I was just sort of floored. And I was just like, cause you know, one of the big things for me was financially because I planned on buying, um, buying, um, 15 DSLR cameras for the kids to have. And so, mm-hmm. It wasn't really a, a cheap endeavor for me to, to start on my own. And so I didn't know if that was, you know, five bucks or 5,000 bucks or what it was. So I, I just, it was just, it was just the sort of words that I needed to, to get me going. And, um, and I, I just, um, I thought it was just time to do it. And, and, um, I knew I could do it locally. I knew I could do it with, with kids in, in the Bay area. Um, I had just, I had just sort of settled back in the Bay area after moving, moving back from me, uh, from New York. And so the timing was right and, and I was just getting going on the safaris and, and this, this great friend had, had sort of given me the spark to get it going. And, um, and over the course of the next few months, I, I worked with, um, with Earth Island Institute. They're a wonderful, um, wonderful organization that are, it's a fiscal sponsor for many environmental projects and got it all set up, pitched it to them. They were, they were down with it. They accepted it. And then I went back to my friend on the next safari and said, guess what? Here it is. And he was super stoked. And, and that was the birth of it. And, and so, um, I got, I got the cameras and I, and I started making contacts, um, with, with the environmental groups that I, that I've worked with out here for, for several years. Um, Audubon and, and a few others, um, a couple of gear manufacturers as well, and we just started gathering kids and and from from different groups and and different sort of um, neighborhoods and, and different income levels and boys and then all girls and schools and and it's just been amazing. It's just been such a such a super exciting way to to connect these uh, these kids who um, you know several of them. Uh, are into nature but some of them have never even really been out of san francisco and so right. when you get a, ki- a camera in a kid's hand and you and you you take them out and something extraordinary happens you know that that's a you know that's going to stick with them for a long time so right. we've done a bunch of them in a bunch of different places and and um, it's been going really well I, c- I can give you a really good story about one if you, if you want me to i would love to hear that sure it's really fun it's it's my favorite sort of connection story so far we did um i did a um a workshop with with Peak Design, a gear manufacturer in San Francisco for mm-hmm. for a bunch of young adults in San Francisco, and we did it in Glen Canyon Park, and it's a, this little sliver of a park um, right in the thick of, of all the buildings. And um, we did our classroom session, and everything was going great. And we got out, passed out the cameras, and did our lesson, and then we started hiking. And I just remember saying to myself, "Please, like in the city here, give me one thing that can happen that will just 
get these kids connected. And, you know, I don't know how much wildlife is in Glen Canyon. I'm hoping for some hummingbirds or, or anything, <laughs> just something to get these kids really riled up. And we're about an hour and a half into it. And we sort of get to the end of this trail and we're just sort of looping through this little field and two coyotes in the middle of San Francisco come out into this really skinny field and we're all looking at each other and then they start howling and uh, <laughs> we've, we've all got lands like sort of short lenses on and um but everybody has a 300 millimeter lens too and so i'm running around grabbing everybody's lenses off and, and sticking <laughs> the 300s on and uh, all the kids are shooting these these coyotes howling and the looks on their faces and some of them weren't even taking pictures because they were just blown away like they just were staring at it and and uh, i wish i would have gotten a few pictures of the kids just just staring at it not not shooting it but um, just such a such a wonderful experience and to have all those all those kids when we're done all just have that experience to sort of take back with them one of the mothers uh, emailed me after and said i don't know what you did with my son yesterday but you know he's 14 years old and he said that was the best day of his life and i just remember being 14 and all the things i had done by the age of 14 and you know, going out and taking a picture in a in a park wasn't necessarily ranking for me then, but to know that I had that kind of impact was, was really super fun. Right. Yeah. No. It's um providing opportunities for for kids that maybe I don't know just didn't maybe haven't grown up in nature or didn't have parents that went into nature or maybe they don't have the maybe they come from a socioeconomic background that doesn't afford them the ability to get out of the city. I think the type of work that you're doing is so important for so many reasons. Yeah, thanks. It's it's been really really fun and really rewarding. I I have to be honest. I've been challenged since COVID. I've had a handful of workshops had to get canceled because um, you know we do a classroom setting and I've got a big van and we all pile into the van and we go look for for whales or bobcats or or whatever. And so um, you know the Zoom thing is is sort of taken over and and um, it's not as personal and, it, and it's not it's not uh, it's still working but it's just not quite. Um, Quite how I had found it, and so I'm just really still searching for a bit of a pivot to um, to still get outside and and uh, you know maybe smaller groups in, in larger places kind of thing. But um, sure, but yeah, it's been really rewarding, and I'm I'm really super happy that I started it. And you know, time is always a, a crunch for me, and with, with all the verticals I've got going on, but always making time for this is is really important. I'm I'm really looking forward to continuing it. That's awesome, man. Well, maybe that's a good <clears throat> segue to talk a little bit about uh, wildlife photography. For you personally, I, I really would just like to know, what is it about wildlife photography that kind of inspires you? Like, why do you do it? Yeah, it's interesting. The the, the wildlife photography thing sort of snuck up on me. I mean, I, I had a, a real um, sort of nature family, nature upbringing, um, and photography has always been sort of a part of it. But, um, you know, we all, everybody in wildlife, I think, starts out because they see a specific animal they like or, or they, um, they see a photo they like or they, or they, maybe they go to Africa and it's just like, they're just wowed by, by nature. Um, for me, it was, it was more sort of conservation focused. And that's where most of my work is, is today. Um, and most of the writings that I've been successful with have, have been on conservation and worked on a couple of films for, uh, around conservation, about predator killing and about, um, about, um, preserving national parks. And, um, so the, the conservation angle was really the, the, the thing that sort of brought me in. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the sort of early things that, that sort of locked me in was, was, um, we have these things called spread out across the country called wildlife killing contests. And I'm not sure if you've, you've heard about these, Matt, but they're, um, and it's amazing how prevalent they are and how 
many of us, and I didn't know about it either until you know until just ten years ago. Um, but but almost every state in the country has a uh, a killing contest. The different counties, and many of them multiple um, in in each state, um, where on public land. Um, these contests are just a blood sport. You just go out on a Saturday, Sunday, and you just kill as many animals as possible. That's coyotes and foxes and, and mountain lions and wolves and uh, you know whatever moves. And it's oh my and it's, god. Um, so know, it's basically no... for grazing of livestock, right? Yeah, that that there is some roots to that. So um, that's sort of another another tangent off of this. Um, another thing that I'm I'm quite involved in as, as well now. But yes, there. There is, um, there is, there is quite a, um, there is a connection there. Um, you know, we kill, we as a, as a nation kill about probably 500,000 coyotes a year. Um, and a lot of that is at the behest of ranching. We, we, um, you know, we have livestock all out, all out through the West and, um, and our own government kills a, a significant portion of those. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, the, the killing contests were the, were the first thing and, and it's, um, it's really quite disturbing for me. We just we just get, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of teams that go out on, to public land and just clear it of, of wildlife. And there's no scientific basis for it. There's no population control um, science behind it. It's literally just a just a blood sport. So um, there's a wonderful organization called Project Coyote that is that is um, really working hard on this issue. And um, and that was one of the early groups that I, that I got involved with. And um, so. Um, so that was that was really one of the one of the first links, and it was it was it, it was coyote specifically, and, and the, the logo for my company, Point Reyes Safaris, is a coyote, and it's just such a magnificent animal. You think of all the animals that we've turned our guns against in since we got here, um, you know, grizzly bears and black bears and, and elk and buffalo <laughs> and whales and buffalo, and I mean, name it, right? I mean, we've driven wolves, we've driven we've driven almost every animal to the brink of extinction, and then had to put laws in place to sort of save them. Or, Try and help bring them back. We've lost many of them as well. You think of coyotes, Matt, right? So there's there's more coyotes today than there ever have been in the United States, um, and there's no protection for them anywhere. Um, you know, many places are not even considered a fur-bearing mammal, and there's plenty of states that have um, have bounties on them still. So um, so for an animal like that to be able to persevere through that through this type of persecution uh, and ensure its survival and, and to and to you know they're native to the southwest and so when you think about where they are today they're in they're in every state across the country and they're in the snow in alaska they're in they're in the sand and the deserts they're they're in downtown san francisco they're <laughs> they're survivors they're the for, they're in the forest yeah they're everywhere so they have literally um adapted um both through their breeding habits and and for their for their habitat to ensure their own survival and there's no other animal that 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 can survive like that. It's just really super incredible. Well, except so, for humans. I, yeah. So I, yeah, exactly. So I got really, <laughs> um, I got really stoked and, and interested in the coyotes. And so, um, so I'm an ambassador for project coyote and I work on the, the killing contest. I worked on a film for that, that that'll be out soon. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I spend, I spend a lot of my energy on, on that specific topic. So, um, so yeah, that, that was the draw. And then, um, the more I got into wildlife photography and that, the, the more I, I saw I saw the sort of the ethics of, of wildlife photography and how many things really bothered me. Um, one of the very early things that I that I was really sort of addicted to was were owls, and I looked at all these beautiful pictures of great gray owls and snowy owls all all flying at the camera with their wings spread open and 
grabbing mice off the snow. And, and I just thought, wow, this is just so amazing. This is one of the things I want to, I want to focus on. Everybody loves owls and, and I can, you know, there's a lot of owls in California. Maybe I can figure out some sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, thing to work, work around owls. And um, it just took a little sort of Google searching and, and so many of the, of these beautiful owl shots we see are, are completely unethical. They, they're, the photographers go to the pet stores and they buy these, these, pet these mice these feeder mice and then they head out into nature and they call the owls in and then everybody lines up and they throw a mouse out and the owl swoops down out of the, out of the tree and grabs it and everybody clicks away um so baiting so, in other words yeah, so baiting baiting owls yeah and so mm-hmm. they'll sit there and throw mice over and over and over and over again and and um so so it was that and then it was you know dog food for bears and dead deer for wolves and the more i got into it the more i saw the the compromised ethics of of wildlife photography and so that really pushed me even harder into the sort of conservation space and sure. that's where really where i've settled that's um that's sort of how i got into it and that's where the, the majority of my sort of focus is right now um well i want to i want to take a deep dive into the ethics but before we do that i wanted to kind of wrap up the conversation around um these uh what do you call them? Killing sprees, basically. Right, killing, yeah, the killing contests. Yeah. So, I um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the podcast called the Wilderness Podcast, um, but uh, I listen to it occasionally, and I was really horrified to learn about really how much destruction um, grazing of cattle and sheep have on public lands. And it's not just um, on animals like coyotes because of ranchers killing them, but it's also on the vegetation, the natural vegetation that we all like to photograph as landscape photographers getting trampled and overrun with invasive species that gets, you know, pooped out by the, the wildlife. But then also what's really sad is if you're a fisherman, uh, which I'm not, uh, but if you're into fishing, you know, all of that... Uh, feces and waste that comes out of cattle and sheep gets into the water system and it pollutes the water system and makes it so that fish like salmon and trout can't reproduce because it's basically toxic toxification of the water a water system and so there's a really cool nonprofit up in idaho called the western watersheds project Mm -hmm. um, which i donate money to um and they uh it's there's a fascinating episode on the the um the wilderness podcast about it because they talk about how, I don't know, maybe like back in the nineties, they decided their executive director decided to, to purchase the, uh, the grazing rights to some of the land in Idaho that was being grazed on and having all this damage done to it. And of course all the ranchers were up in arms because somebody wanted to use the land for something other than grazing. They just wanted to protect it from grazing and so, like, they had, the governor had to get involved. It was really a fascinating story about, you know, public land and public land use. But what's interesting, you know, I'm a vegetarian, so I, I understand I have a bias. But uh, the amount of, uh, I know I'm going on a tangent here, especially for photographers, but yeah, no problem. The, the amount of actual meat that gets produced through public land grazing is, it's like 2% of the total uh, livestock that we consume in this country. So we're, we're allowing immeasurable damage to our public lands for almost no gain to us as a, as a society. And I think if people were more aware of 
the destruction that public grazing has on public lands um, and the the very small benefit that it has, I think they'd be more aware. Maybe 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 want to take a little bit more action. I don't know. That's me. But anyways, I see that that there's a similar topic as you're talking about with, with the coyotes because it's having an impact on other uh, natural wildlife like deer and elk uh, because the cattle and uh, sheep are consuming a lot of the natural food supply that other animals depend on. So if you're really into nature and wildlife, you probably should be against public grazing. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, that's funny. And, and we didn't talk about this, this either, but it's um, prior, but this is, um, th- that's an exact issue that's happening up, up here in Point Reyes as well. So Point Reyes National Seashore is, is a, a national park. And it's uh, one of the few parks in the nation where private citizens live inside the national park. And mm-hmm. there's, um, there's about, um, about a quarter to a third of the park is actually uh, dedicated for private grazing. So we've got um, about a dozen beef ranches and about uh, half a dozen dairy ranches here. And anybody that's sort of been following the, the Point Reyes story, um, it's at its sort of peak political um, sort of power right now um, where the environmental groups are, are, are quite active in, in sort of uh, this exact topic. So, um, you know, public land versus, versus private, uh, private ranching on public land. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a real hot topic. The politics are at its, at its fiercest here. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got a native tule elk that, um, that was driven to the brink of extinction down to a dozen animals. And and Mm -hmm. White Reyes has about 10% of the, of the Thule elk population, um, you know, we went from 500,000 Thule elk down to 5,000 now. And, um, you know, we have less than 1% of the numbers left and, and uh, the national park is proposing calling some of those elk to provide more grass for the cows that graze in the national park. Yes. So it's a super, super um, political hot topic right now. And, and we're right at the, uh, at the apex of this all happening um, here. So anybody that's interested in that can read up a little bit about that too. It's really quite a fascinating story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I know uh, maybe I have a bias in this as well, but, you know, when I think of public land being for everyone, uh, the fact that individuals are able to have cattle graze on it for their own personal uh, interest, which then is at the detriment of all of the rest of our experiences and ability to experience wildlife and nature there. I don't necessarily think that argument stands up in terms of them saying they have a right uh, because it's public. Um, public means for everyone, uh, not just you. Uh, but that's maybe that's just me. I made my way. My brain is wired. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think you're. I think you're spot on, right? I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference between, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, me personally. I mean, this is my own personal opinion. Um, no public, no public lands should should have, uh, you know, have dairy cows pooping all over it where the public can go out and, and ride a bike or throw a picnic down or, or what have you. So, um, so, you know, there's a, there's quite a few national parks that, that allow grazing. And most of them are, are, um, you know, the, the families don't live inside the park. A lot of, a lot of them just allow grazing and, and then the ranchers come and pick up their, pick up their cows and, and take them off. Um, here in Point Reyes, the families live, um, live a hundred percent, um, you know, the hundred percent of their operations are, are inside the park. So, you know, we've got semis coming in with, with hay and, and, you know, poop trucks spreading cow manure all over the, the public land and hay trucks and feed trucks. And so it's, yeah, it's a, 
it's a it's a challenge for sure. You know, I I understand the politics of it, but um, you know, I, I'm the same as you. I I believe that public land is for the public and not for for the the, the benefit of a, of a handful of of, of people. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this is a perfect segue. So you started talking about ethics in wildlife photography, and before we dive into the various topics that encapsulate that conversation, I thought it might be fun to maybe each of us kind of personally define what what ethics uh, means for us. And if you're good with it, I can go first. Um, yeah, sure. Go for it. Because this comes up a lot in uh, landscape photography as well around mm-hmm. different topics around, um, you know, geotagging or how you present your work to the public or a variety, you know, like how you how you interact with the, with the land as you're on it as a photographer. So for me, I actually went through a class in ethics and it really stuck out to me. The definition that really stuck for me is uh, ethics is basically when something maybe isn't illegal, but it's still wrong. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if to me, that perfectly defines ethics. You know, if it's it's doing the right thing, even if it's not illegal to do it. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a that's a great summary for sure. Um, what about for you? So yeah, so I mean, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, you know, if I look at it, focusing on a wildlife from a wildlife perspective, um, I think ethics for me can be summed up pretty well, um, really using the word empathy. Um, so you know, as a wildlife photographer, we all want to get a nice face shot of a wolf, or we want to get a baby bird in a nest, or we want to get a mom suckling suckling her her, her pups or what have you. Um, but it's from an ethics standpoint, to me, it's it's not about it's not about our photo. It's not about what we capture. It's not about what what um, what our selfish sort of interest is in it. It's about empathy for the subject that we're shooting. And don't get me wrong, I I want to I want to have a nice close up shot of a wolf face. I think that would be incredible. But for me to um, you know to do my very very best to ensure that I'm thinking about the behavior and and my impact on that animal. I think that's where the sort of ethical line gets drawn for me. It's about having empathy for the for the subject that I'm I'm trying to to photograph, and that's not to say that I'm I'm 100 um, percent effective in in everything I do. You know, I some, see an owl in a tree, and I you know I do my very best to find a position to be able to find a, a window into that owl, and sometimes they fly they fly out of the tree, and I know that was me, and and. Um, you know, from that standpoint, I, I made a mistake, though I was doing my very best. Um, so, you know, none of us are perfect, but I think it's the mindset of, of having the animal's safety and and, and sort of um, the, the animal in mind before we before we prioritize our, our own photo. Mm-hmm. You know, what I think is um, really interesting about ethics as it relates to wildlife photography is that what I've come to learn is that a lot of the quote-unquote big name wildlife photographers that are kind of popular out there, they maybe don't adhere to some of the ethical standards that you might be describing here in terms of, you know, photographing animals on game farms or photographing captive animals in zoos um, or like baiting animals, things of that nature. And I'm curious, do you think that uh, public opinion of those photographs would change if they knew some of the backstory of how they were captured? Yeah, I, I think so for sure. And for from an ethical standpoint, um, 
you know, I, I see it in, in a lot of public posts, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and, and um, you'll see an image of a, of a mountain lion jumping from one rock to another. And you see all these, wow, amazing. And, and, and uh, how did you get that? Oh man, you must've been sitting there for hours and all these like wonderful wows and likes and, and, uh, and pretty much any picture you get of a mountain lion jumping from one rock to another during a sunset is a, is a captive animal from a game farm. And there's, there's plenty of game farms that, that can provide that experience for, for photographers. And so this, this mountain lion is caged up its whole life and it's, it's taught to perform for talk for photographers. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think if people knew that the conditions that that animal was raised in and, and the conditions that it lives in, and it gets taken out and put in a truck and driven to a, a location and it's told to, to jump across these rocks for treats and then put back in its cage and driven back to its to its house and then put back in its cage. I, I think people would be appalled that that was the uh, the manner in which that picture was taken. And you can see it in, in the comments, you know, then somebody somebody will comment and say, um, you know, for all those people that are ooh and on over this picture, this is a game farm picture of an animal, captive animal, and it's trained to do this. And then you see the comments all change. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? No way. You, you, you did this. This is a caged animal. And then you sort of see this spiral of, of disappointment when, when people are, uh, uh, people find out the, the true ethics behind the story. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think so. There's, um, there's, I, I'm on the ethics committee for the North American Nature Photography Association as well. And, and, um, we have an ethics committee and, and there's, uh, something that we've come up with that's called truth and captioning. And, this goes back to your sort of, uh, you know, your, your landscape ethics. Like, is it, uh, you know, it's not illegal to take a picture of a, of a, of a mountain lion from a game farm, but is it right? Like, is that, is that really, you know, the right thing to do? And, um, and so even though it's legal to take a picture of this mountain lion, we've come up with these guidelines um, surrounding truth and captioning and, and having every photographer when they, when they share pictures like this to, to post the actual, um, the actual circumstances of the photo. If it was in the zoo, if it was captive, if it was a game farm, if it's trained, if it's fed, if it's called, if it's, uh, you know, a, a variety of different sort of, um, of, of caption techniques that, that users can actually, or, or viewers can actually understand the, the, the circumstances behind it. Um, and, you know, there, there are places for um, rehabilitation centers um, that take in an injured mountain lion that's broken a leg and can't be re- be, be returned to the wild there's wonderful facilities for those types of, of animals to live out their their wildlife careers um but to to breed baby animals inside of a facility specifically to train them for these these types of um these types of lives is is certainly a is certainly an ethical uh, uh you know an ethical situation in my, in my opinion can you can you lay out the uh, the argument for why that is not an ethical a way of capturing wildlife. Well, it goes back to sort of what I what I alluded to earlier. Um, a lot of these game farms will purposefully breed these animals in captivity for profit. So, no wild mountain lion should be subjected to uh, a life of of born and bred in in a cage and and to be trained like a circus animal to be exploited for for photographers. Um, you know that that just simply is not um, it's simply not the DNA of a of a, of a mountain lion. It, it shouldn't be bred for personal profit. Um, 
you know, and then there's, there's always, there's always gray lines, you know, there's always gray areas that, that, um, that come into the, come into play here where you talk about sanctuaries and, and rehabilitation centers and things like that and zoos. Um, so that's where these accredited facilities come in. And, and then, you know, even then you have, you have good accredited facilities and poor accredited facilities. Um, but if we're just talking about the, you know, the sort of high level look at it, you know, any facility that specifically breeds wild animals for this for the specific purpose of of profit, um, you know, to me that's the that's the worst of the bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about um, truth in your captioning for your images. I'm just going to go on a little bit of a tirade here, and you'll just have to excuse me. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting that uh, in my in my opinion. I believe that a lot of the behavior that we see in photography and it around, you know, captioning and kind of over glorification of, of the, of the final image based on something that probably isn't and, you know, using baiting to, um, to, to lure animals for your workshops or, or, or perhaps uh, manipulating the photograph to make it look a, the most amazing way it possibly can. At the end of the day, I, I hate to say this, but I, I, I can't help but think that it's really all about competition and ego and money. Do you, or, or am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I, I think that's, I think that's very true. Right. Um, you know, we all, we all post-process our images, right. And so we all add a little exposure, dark and lighten and, and, you know, use the sort of normal sliders that are available in, in the Lightroom's and the Photoshop's. Um, but there's a point where your post-processing becomes, um, I don't know, ar- artistic or, or um, over-manipulated or, or to the point of just being fake, right? So if we're, if we're, you know, if we're, if we're removing an animal and, and putting it in a different setting or changing a sky or, or, uh, you know, cloning out branches or, um, you know, there's a line that gets crossed where, um, the image is no longer a true representation of, of what you saw. And I think the, you know, from an ethical standpoint, I think that the people that, that take the ethics seriously will, will try to try very, very hard to maintain um, the integrity of the photo as they saw it and not manipulate the photo into something that is, is not a true representation of what was seen. Um, I, I, you know, I, and I know that from a wildlife standpoint, I'm curious to, to, to hear about some of the sort of sort of the landscape um, ethics as it relates to, you know, um, you know, are we adding, subtracting things to photos? Are we oversaturating? Are we are we going places that we, we shouldn't be for these photos? Like curious to hear some of the sort of the ethical challenges from a landscape photographer standpoint. But yeah, definitely from a from a um, from a wildlife standpoint, you know, anytime you you sacrifice the life of of an animal like a mouse um, to get a picture of a great gray owl diving in for your own personal satisfaction or your likes or, or to sell a photo or, or, you know, it's, it's really, it's really then it's about you and your selfishness versus capturing what is actually happening in nature naturally. And so sacrificing this animal and these, these mice for, for the sake of your photos, just, it's really wrong. And, you know, there's some horrible stories about, about killing animals to, to pull in other animals for photography. Um, and, uh, you know, any, anytime we do that, anytime we're purposefully manipulating the animal um, for our own selfish gains is, is bad. And then, of course, anytime we're using 
live or, or, or dead bait for, for that matter. Um, it introduces challenges to that, to those animals, whether they, whether they, you know, they, they lessen their sharpening, their, their hunting skills, or they, they stay in one place when they should be moving. Um, maybe they pick up some, some illness because of a, uh, of a, of a mouse that's been decaying or, um, who knows? I mean, all, all of these things are, we, we, we do this a lot with owls in the snow. And so we, we usually do it off the road, not we as in me, but um, the ethical people that the ethical, ethically challenged people who are baiting these animals will, will typically do it on the roadside. And so these animals are flying into and in, in getting hit by cars and, and, you know, tourists will pull over and these animals will just fly in thinking they're going to get a free handout. So, you know, there's a lot of implications for this stuff. And um, so many people do it knowingly and, you know, from that standpoint, the, the ethical considerations that there just aren't any when, when people are, are making those decisions. Yeah, I've always, um, I've always found it curious the differences in the ethical standards between wildlife photographers and landscape photographers because in the landscape photography community, there seems to be a fairly healthy and never-ending debate on kind of you know, whether or not nature should look like nature or if it's okay to manipulate the bejesus out of the photograph for artistic purposes to make it look as perfect as, as possible. And I would say in the last 10 years, it's really gone the direction of just do whatever you want because it's art um, right. and people don't care. And I guess, you know, on the surface, I guess the difference is that no, no live animal was harmed in the process of someone photoshopping the hell out of their of their landscape photograph but in some ways for me anyway the results are somewhat the same like it creates this unrealistic uh, representation of of the natural world and then kind of undermines other people's experiences of what it's like to be in the natural world if that's something that you value as a photographer or as a viewer of photographic artwork i like i said i've always been curious about how uh, most wildlife photographers seem to kind of generally accept the ethical standards, like in the competitions, like wildlife photographer of the year, you know, they're very, they seem to have much more stringent expectations on what you can and can't do to the photograph in terms of cropping or things of, or baiting or removing things, you know, cloning out things and stuff like that. But in landscape photography, it seems like, Anything goes, just whatever, right. do whatever yeah. you want. Um, yeah, well, that's pretty, it's sort of recent too with, with some of the wildlife photography of the year stuff. Um, you know, just as, just as recent as, uh, actually there's, there's still some prominent contests that still allow baiting. Um, and um, it is disappointing because our, our group, um, the group, a group that I, that I'm really tight with that works on these issues. Uh, we've approached a lot of those contests and we've made, and we've made good progress. There are plenty of them now that, that um, are not allowing any baiting or harassing or or um, manipulating to 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 capture their images. Um, there are a few that are still a little bit farther behind, but but many of them have made made those changes. And um, you know, some of them say live bait. They, there's no live baiting. Some say you know it's okay to to um, to use to use bait, um, dead baiting or, or dead animals, or um, you know, some of the ethical considerations like there's professional blinds in certain places for grizzly bears and wolverines where where dog food is used and they dump dog food down by this down by a pond and they sit in a blind and these these animals come for the dog food so um so yeah there's there's 
there's still some challenges, but we've we've made headway um, as a as a wildlife photography community in, in sort of disallowing these types of things for photo contests. When you know, just ten years ago, this um, th- those rules weren't in place in, in a lot of these contests. So I'm very happy to see the movement on it, and I hope it continues. And 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 uh, and the, the rules get even more stringent around this this specific topic because it is really important. What what would you say was the kind of pivotal moment where there seemed to be more consensus among uh, uh, wildlife photographers around uh, these kind of standards? Oh, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I I think I think one thing that put it really front and center was was social media, right? So. Mm-hmm. You know, before Facebook and Instagram, you know, we took pictures and we printed them and we put them in an album and we showed our friends when they came over <laughs> right. for beer, right? So, <laughs> right. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as, I don't think it was as selfish back then. And, and by selfish, I don't mean, you know, in a friendly selfish way, it, it's all selfish because you're just going out and you're, and you're taking pictures and, and you're looking at them yourselves and yourself and you're, you're enjoying them and you put them in an album and you look at them every now and again while you're, while you're, you know, hanging out um or you know showing friends but um you know that's that's how we used to do it. we used to take them for ourselves and then show them to show them to people after we we got the prints back from, from our print shop so I, I think the explosion of, of social media um has created um has really boosted the sort of selfish need for 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 this um you know we, we go out we chase likes and and um followers and 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 you know, just question if we're all doing it for the right thing and for, for the right reasons. Um, and then you see you see people that are making a living off of, of compromised ethics. You see people that are, are are purposefully harassing animals. I just watched a, a video a couple of days ago of a guy fl- flying a drone into a den, into a coyote den, and the mother is snapping at it um, as it's right in the entrance, and she's feeding her pups. So, um, and then you see the people like, "Wow, that was awesome! That's so cool! Way to go! Like, great find!" or and and you just see zero empathy for a, a, a nursing mother with her cubs or her pups while while someone's flying a drone into the entrance of the den. So you know you have these you have people that are are purposefully challenging the ethics because that's what's more um, socially sort of exciting. That's what brings the likes and, and the followers in. So yeah, I, I I think social media has is is one of the one of the sort of key ingredients for for these topics becoming much more, um, much more visible. Mm-hmm. Well, you said that there are right reasons, uh, for making wildlife photographs. I'm curious what those are in your opinion. <laughs> yeah. For, for me, it's, for me, it's, it's really, um, all been boiling back to, to conservation. So, you know, the wildlife killing contests, you know, we're, we're trying to, to capture images to show, you know, these, these coyotes, you know, somebody kills a coyote on their property and they hang it on a fence. Um, and, and you know, some, some states having bounties, giving people 25 bucks a paw and having people bring paws in and capturing images of this, this type of, um, these type of, of issues. Um, I'm working on a, a coyote mange, um, issue where, um, you know, where once again, back in the, I don't know exactly when, maybe the fifties, we were, purposefully spreading mange on on coyotes to try and rid them uh, to try and kill them it's a mite that burrows under their skin and they and they basically scratch themselves and they scratch all their fur off trying to get the mites out mm. and then they skin gets exposed and cracked and infected and then they end up dying um 
So through that and then through dentocides as well. So coyotes, their immune systems are compromised when they, uh, you know, they find a dead rat that's, that's eaten rat poison and then they eat the rat and then they, their immune system gets compromised and they, um, they lose their fur and they get quite sick. And so I'm documenting the, these, these mange coyotes that we have in the area and, and trying to, to make some changes to, to help these coyotes and, and ensuring that we're doing the right thing to make sure that they don't, don't get these diseases. Um, so everything for, for me personally um, is, is sort of boiling back down to, to conservation. And, and of course, I have my, my own selfish um, times where I just want to go out and find a bobcat and sit with it for an hour and watch it hunt and, and take its picture for, for no reason, just for my own personal enjoyment of, of watching these animals. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly have that, that, um, that fun need to, to satisfy, to, to see these animals as well. And, and so often I go out and I don't even have my camera. I'll just go out and you're watching the behavior of these animals is, is just incredible. And the farther back you are, the more natural they're behaving. And, and you can learn a ton by, by just staying back and watching. And it certainly has improved my photography by, by sitting back and watching because you just are able to, to understand what their, their movements are and their behaviors are. And, and it really helps you really understand what, what distance is, you know, when you see, you know, somebody else approach it or a truck go by or another animal come by, a coyote come by, by a bobcat you really learn a, a ton about their behavior. So um, just sitting back and watching is, is, a, is a wonderful way. I get a little bit off on a tangent here. Um, but yeah, um, you know, going back to, back to it, it's for me, it's for me, most of my, my work and, and what I'm sort of going after right now is, is from a conservation standpoint. And so that's not to say that any, any, anybody that goes out and just takes pictures for themselves is, is selfish, but um, that's just a personal thing for me in my, in my career and, and what I find sort of enjoyable sure. with, with the, uh, the sport. I love what you said about just watching because, uh, and how that improves your your photography as a wildlife photographer because that's actually very uh, relevant to landscape photography too. You know, the more that you kind of get to know a place and you understand uh, the the foliage and the fauna and how the light interplays with different. Uh, objects at different times of the day and different seasons. I think the same kind of thing can be said, like the more you get to know something and can watch it and observe it and kind of, you know, develop a relationship with it. I think that that certainly yields much more powerful and personally meaningful photographs that I think, at least for me, that that is um, the true kind of pinnacle of photography is something that actually means something to you personally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I can't stress that enough. I just, I think it's so important in, in, in anyone's aspirations for, for certainly for wildlife photography and um, just spend the time to, to get to know your animal get to know your subject, empathize with it. I'm, you know, watch how many times it hunts and, and is unsuccessful. You know, we, we watched a bobcat a few days ago, miss four in a row over the course of an hour. And so, you know, these animals are, are, scratching by trying to earn a living out there and and you know every time we are close to them we're affecting them and, and like i said earlier on i'm, I'm not perfect and, and animals have definitely moved moved by my presence um but you know i try to get to know the animals i try and get to know individual animals so i know which ones are more tolerant and which ones are approachable and and um yeah sitting back and, and watching and, and understanding the behaviors and getting to know your subjects um, is only going to improve your photography, and, and I think that's just such a such a great lesson for everybody to to try and uh, try and implement. Uh, the better you know your subjects, the the more successful you're going to be. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I was hoping you you could talk a little bit about geotagging because um, in landscape photography, geotagging is a huge debate where on one side of the fence you have kind of outdoor enthusiasts that believe that not geotagging is a form of gatekeeping and it keeps other people from enjoying places that you've experienced. And then you have other people on the other side of the fence like me who believe that geotagging mostly can only lead to negative impacts on the places that we like to photograph. So I'd be curious to hear uh, what is kind of the your stance on geotagging in the in the realm of of uh, wildlife photography? Yeah, that's. I, I think there's probably an equal debate on, uh, in both camps in landscape and, and wildlife photography. Um, you know, tagging is is a real geotagging is a real touchy issue. Um, and I think the more sensitive the the sort of situation, the more more important and more critical it, it becomes. Um, so any type of nesting birds or den sites, bobcat dens, coyote dens, um, baby animals, um, skittish animals that are skittish by nature. Um, yeah, I mean, as a general rule, I think I'm in the same camp as you, Matt. It's, it's, uh, I think, I don't think there's any, any real reason to, to, as a default, have your, you know, have locations on. Um, I I think if we were better as humans, that would be possible. But right. it's just, just too many examples. I mean, it's pretty much, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen an example of, of, of uh, tagging a tag in a location for an animal and then having that animal um, benefit from it. Um, you know, when you, when an owl is, is seen, you know, Point Reyes is really quite known for its birds. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's over 50% of North America's birds have touched down over here. And so, um, you know, you, you geotag a bird that, that um, has never been in the park before and, Within an hour, you've got um, you know fifty people running down running down the trail with scopes and cameras, and uh, and you know that bird's that bird is, is experiencing an incredible amount of pressure because of that 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 tagging. Um, so you know I'm I'm selective with the people that I know are ethical and I know that I can share things with and, and I know are going to be extremely cautious. Um, but as a general rule, um, yeah, I don't I don't have any location information on any of my photos and. And that's, you know, it's, again, goes back to my empathy for the animal and just trying to ensure that that, um, that animal has the greatest chance of success with its, uh, with its eking out a living as, as possible. And the more people that are surrounding it trying to photograph it, the more, the more it's effective, for sure. Yeah, I know this probably isn't a problem in the United States, but I know in Africa that poachers actually use uh, Instagram and other platforms to kind of look for locations of animals that they can poach like elephants and rhinos. So I know that's a problem over in Africa, but uh, I heard a story here in the United States, maybe from maybe it was even from last year or the year before where there was a, a rancher who had a property and I think it, it might've been bald eagles or some other rare bird that was, um, there was a bunch of this rare bird or a couple of these rare birds were on his property and all these people found out about it on Instagram or something, and oh, they yeah. were lining up. Did you hear about this? It might have been a northern hawk owl. I think that's what it was. Yeah, did you hear? And then he ended up just killing it so that people would stop showing up on his property? <laughs> yeah. I, was that the story? I that one. It was, uh, if it's the same story, I think it was a northern hawk owl, and it was in a, in a tree in his front yard. And, um, and uh, yeah, there were there – were, I 
if I remember the, the photo correctly, it must have been at least a couple dozen people there. And um, yeah, I, I think that's what happened. I can't confirm it for sure. But yeah, I, I think what happened was he ended up just killing the bird. And then that was the end of people hanging out in front of his house. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. And that's all because of geotagging and yeah, that, people that sharing their location. Yeah, that was quite a story. So yeah, I mean, there's another great example of humans not being able to to sort of, um, you know, figure out the right way to photograph an animal without endangering it or, or and who knows, you know, maybe, maybe the person's house was maybe people were coming up onto his lawn and going onto his porch or whatever. I mean, I'm sure they were, I, I certainly don't think it, it warranted him killing the bird. <laughs> right. Um, but saying that, um, you know, he was put in that situation by, by us not, not having empathy for, for the situation. So, yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a, a great example of geotagging. Probably not, not, uh, not working out so well. Well, and what's interesting is that it's all based on social pressure. I, my mom is a birder, and uh, she's a, um, you know, her she's like been a member of like the local birding groups that go out, and you know they do like their Christmas bird counts and stuff like that, and they're on like eBird, I think, is the website. Right. Yep. And she was telling me that there was this rare bird near her house that her and her friend went um, to photograph and they took pictures of it and they waited like a week or something like that to post it because they didn't want a bunch of other people going there to disturb it. And they got kicked out of the bird group because of it. That's just crazy, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. eBird is, eBird is quite a, is, is quite an interesting website. Um, a lot of photographers, I personally don't, I don't go on eBird at all. Um, I don't know why, because there's, there's plenty of information on it and there's lots of locations of owls and, and birds. I, I, I never go on it, but it is a really um, interesting resource. There's, there, um, you know, I'll, I'll see photographers out in the field and they'll say, they'll be down, you know, looking for some, you know, an Arctic loon or something. And I'll, and I'll just say, oh, an Arctic loon, cool. I don't know if I've ever heard of one being here or seeing one here in <laughs> and and they'll say, oh, yeah, I just saw it on eBird yesterday. So that happens quite often out in, in Point Reyes. I, 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 there are a lot of people picking up information from eBird. So um, people are very generous with their, their sightings and locations. And the fact that somebody would get kicked out for trying to protect the bird for a week, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty aggressive, I think. Yeah, well, apparently it's fairly common. Um, you know, like if you're in these groups, like they have these kind of unwritten rules that say that you have to tell the rest of the group where you where you saw the bird so that other people can go get it if it's like for their bird their you know their life that's a life yeah. bird the life list yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty crazy and it goes back to you know us being humans right Matt? i mean if, if if there if there was a known spot where there was a bird and and you knew that everybody would stay back on the hill with their scopes and, and and get to see it and it would be a, a great tick for, for the life list. Um, great. You know, then people would be more apt to share knowing that everybody was going to be respectful, but uh, it's just not how, how everybody is, not how we all are. And, and, you know, inevitably right. a group of five people, you know, breaches the sort of line and, or they get there before anybody else does and they, and they get right down to the nest and they're, you know, there's, there's horror, horror stories of, of ethical violations, like trimming, trimming branches off of, off of around a nest and having an opening so somebody can shoot a mom coming back and 
and taking pictures there or feeding her babies so they can get pictures of them feeding babies. And of course, you know, you're taking that cover and shelter away. And then a raven comes in while the mom's gone and just plucks the babies out of the nest. So it's just, uh, you know, it's inevitable that that that's what happens. And, uh, and so, you know, bravo to your mom for, for having the, the priority be the actual bird and not, not the club. Yeah. Well, and we see this in, in landscape photography as well. And it's more, it's so funny because whenever I get in these, these debates with people about location sharing, they're like, well, you're just, you're just, um, hoarding the location for yourself. And it's like, no, it's not that. It's just that I can't trust the thousands of random people that are going to see it to behave the same way that I, that I would. And therefore I just, I can't ethically do that to the location. Like there's just, there's no way for me to guarantee that the people that are going to see where this photo is taken and want to go there are going to treat that place the same way that someone who has been instilled with those ethics would treat it. Yeah, that that's very true. And, you know, I have some, I have some friends that have told me that, you know, that are, that are quite popular photographers and and have massive followings. and, And they've said that they've, they've sadly ruined places. They, they found out about a place there. They discovered a place through their own research. And then they, they, you know, went back, uh, you know, over and over again on their own. And then they designed a workshop around the place. And then once they started doing workshops there, then, you know, in a matter of no time, in a couple of seasons, then there's 50, 60, a hundred people, 200 people, thousand people. And, and the place has permanently changed. And, uh, mm-hmm. and um, so, yeah, he has told me that he's, he's done sharing, sharing his locations. And if he, find something super special he'll it'll be a super special thing for him um and he'll he'll do with it as he as he sort of feels is is, gives that place the most protection Um, yeah Yeah, it's it's a tough one oh and for me it's um it's never like a black and white thing like i'm always evaluating like okay you know is this a place that most people already know about or is this a place i know that could handle a bunch of people or is this a place that even if a bunch of people knew about it they're never going to go here because it took me literally like 20 hours to hike here. You know what I mean? Right, um, totally. So I mean, it's, there's ways to kind of think about it, but yeah, in general, most people aren't thinking about it at all. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. You know, and uh, I'm in a bit of a compromised position here too, being a, being a, a guide and having yes. you know, I'm on the field just about every single day. And so, right. you know, many times a week I get, you know, Instagram messages from people I don't know that, they just say, Hey, I'm heading to Point Reyes. You know, I saw that beautiful picture of that great horned owl. Like, would you mind telling me where that is? Or, you know, you know, oh, that I can't believe you saw a bobcat kitten. I would give anything to do that. Would you share that location with me? And, and, you know, I get that multiple times a week from, from people all over the world. And, and, um, you know, it's hard because I, you know, I want people to see these things. I, I want people to see bobcats. The, the more people that see bobcats, the, the, the better that species will become because people will become connected to that animal. Yes. You know, a few years ago we banned bobcat, bobcat trapping in, in California. And then we just recently bought uh, banned bobcat, um, trope, uh, bobcat trophy hunting, bobcat hunting at all. So, so we've had, we've had great success in, in protecting bobcats in, in California. And, you know, I feel like I've, I've had a part, a part to play in that. And all the people that have come out and seen bobcats with me, um, they instantly become, they just instantly become protectors of the animal because they're so elusive and shy and, and there's no, there's not a lot of places to be able to, to find them in the country. And so, 
when you can see one and then you become connected to that animal, then you become an ambassador for that animal. And so I, I want people to see it. I, you know, I would, I would love to share locations with every person that, that would want to go see a bobcat. And, um, but, you know, I just have to be careful as well and, and make sure that, that, uh, I'm protecting the animal as much as I want people to see, to see that, see those animals as well. So yeah, it, it's hard. You know, I get a lot of requests for that and I, and I have to be really careful about, um, about how I handle those, 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 uh, requests. Yeah. So like, is there a thought process do you use to kind of make a determination of whether or not you should share information? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, <laughs> the general answer, is I, I, I don't give out, I don't, I don't give out any locations. I mean, that's the general answer. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very, very difficult to, to receive an email from somebody you have no idea who they are, what their ethics are, where, where they're coming from, what their desire is, what their motives are. Um, so in general, when, when people ask, it's, um, you know, it, it's something that I, I can give them help with techniques or, or strategies, but um, as it relates to just the, the GPS location, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's about as general as I can be. It's, it's just not, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not my location to give away. It's just not, it's not the best interest of the animal. So, yeah. so I just can't do it. And it's hard too, like you said, I mean, especially if you're teaching workshops, you know, it's, um, you have to make a living as a photographer, but at the end of the day, um, I think it's a pretty short-sighted strategy to teach workshops at places that can't sustain them because, probably what's going to end up happening is your students are going to take their students there and they're going to take their students there. And before you know it, that place is completely transformed into something that you'll no longer want to yeah. photograph. So, yeah. and you know, especially for the sensitive animals, right? So owl nests and bobcat, right. coyote dens and things like that. Like, you know, I just don't, I don't want to be the contributor to, to an owl getting flushed off its nest and then having a, a raven, you know, destroy an egg like that. That to me would be on me for, for being a contributor to that. You know, where I do share information is, is in general with the park. Um, you know, I do get people that, that call and ask and say, you know, what's the best time to view elephant seals and, and where can I go? And you know, there's some very well-known places that are far from the elephant seals. The elephant seal overlook, it's a, it's a cliffside um, viewing platform, basically, and and it's an amazing place. You can watch an elephant seal give birth there, and, and there's baby elephant seals on the beach, and and um, it's a wonderful spot. And and so I would, I'm happy to share that information and give them techniques of, on photographing them and what to look out for. Um, but it's not a sensitive location, and they might not know where it is, but it's not a sensitive location. And I'm happy to, happy to share that with them mm-hmm. because, from an experience standpoint, they'll have a, a wonderful time if they if they know that information. So um, so yeah, there's you know, digging into the criteria it does depend on what people are asking for as well. You know, the tuli elk is another example, like the elephant seals. There's a, there's a, a place where there's, you know, you, you have a very, very high chance of seeing tuli elk. And, and so sharing that, that place with them, you know, especially under the, the threats that the tuli elk are having right now politically, um, the more people that see those majestic animals and they, they take advantage of, of, stating their opinions during comment periods and writing letters and things like that, then great. The more people that see the Tule Elk, the better the chances the Tule Elk will be protected. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some of those situations where, where I'm happy to help. Um, more sensitive ones, it's, it's just not, it's not my location to give away. Totally. 
Well, cool. So um, one, one last topic I wanted to, to ask you about is uh, kind of what is your approach to teaching workshops to students in, in Point Reyes? Like, what are the types of things that you try to cover? What are people generally looking to do? And what are some of the kind of things you, you like to convey to them as a workshop leader? Sure, yeah. The, I'd say probably the most, probably the most popular request is to, is to see a bobcat. <laughs> there's not a lot of places in the country to be able to see them and, and we're lucky we have pretty good success with them out here for such an elusive animal um but they are skittish and they're hard to find and they're perfectly camouflaged and and um so there is a there's a challenge with it and you know we're not successful every time um, despite us having pretty good success so so um you know it's a fun stress every day when people people want to find these guys and uh it's it's fun and it's challenging but it's also uh you know, it's the stress of the job where, you know, in the last half hour of the safari and haven't found one yet. And everything starts turning into a bobcat, every bush, every, every <laughs> dirt, everything starts looking like a bobcat. And some days we pull it out and, and it's hilarious that it happens in the last, you know, the last bit of light. And, and sometimes we don't, but, um, you know, I, I do go back to, to, um, to the, the sort of behavior stuff with, with everybody. Um, yeah, everybody wants to figure out how to, how to shoot, shoot specific animals and, you know, bobcats or coyotes or, and, you know, I tell everybody just to, to try and spend as much time as you can sitting back and watching so you can understand the behaviors. So, you know, if you see a pattern that, that happens quite frequently and you can put yourself or park yourself in the car and, and sit in a certain spot where you know they're going to be coming by, you know, the cars work phenomenally well as blinds you know, the animals in a lot of places are used to cars. And so, you know, a car parked on the side of the road, that's part of the, part of their beat. Um, is better than you following the animal or chasing the animal trying to get its photo. And so we talk a lot about techniques and, and using blinds and, and understanding behaviors. Um, you know, a lot of people want, want variety. Um, and so it's, it's really fun to, to go out and to find as many different species as you can and, and photograph both birds and, and mammals. Um, you know, the, the easiest workshops are the, are the teams that come without cameras and they just want, you know, they want scopes and the binoculars. And then it's super fun, right? Because you're, you know, you might be back a hundred yards or so, but you've got great glass on them and, and everybody's excited about behavior more than the photo. And so we can spend as much time as we want watching and mm -hmm. you know, watch a bobcat for an hour, an hour and a half, and then finally score a meal and, and you know, all right, is she going to run it back to a den? Are we going to see kittens, you know, popping out of the bushes? Or is she going to just go hide and, and eat it? Sometimes we see a coyote pop out of the bushes and chase the bobcat. Or So, you know, the, the behavior piece, sitting back and watching, is is really super awesome. I, I love those safaris. And, of course, you know, being more photo-centric, photo, uh, photo you know, people want, it, want pictures of the bobcats. And so we just do our best to... to um, put ourselves in, in the least compromising positions and, and stay out of their way and make sure that we're not altering their behavior um, or altering it as little as possible and, and, and uh, having those encounters with, with such an, a magnificent species. Uh, it's just really fun. It's, it's just really super thrilling to, to be you know amongst these, these uh, amazing animals. Awesome. Well, Daniel, this has been a lot of fun. I would love to hear who you would recommend uh, we have here on the podcast. Oh wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, from a wildlife from a wildlife photography standpoint, or you know, I was just thinking when I was talking about um, when I was talking about the wildlife killing contests. Um, I, I've got a feeling that that um, that might resonate with with a few of your listeners, and it might be an interesting topic. I know we I know we touched on it and, and have a bit of uh, had a bit of a conversation on it, but um, 
Project Coyote is a nonprofit um, here in in the Bay Area that is really focused on on ending these practices. Um, I think we're up to about seven states now that have banned the practice in, in just the last sort of five years or so. Um, and there's a couple more a couple more states that, that have legislation coming up. And so the goal of, of Project Coyote is to end this uh, nationwide. And um, Camilla Fox is the executive director for, for Project Coyote. And I bet you, um, I bet you she would be a great guest for you. That would be one to, one to consider. Awesome, man. Well, cool. This has been so much fun, Daniel. Yeah, man. Thanks for the invite. That was that was really great. I, I, I love hearing about how the ethics sort of uh, cross over between the you know, between wildlife and, and landscape, and, and uh, it's it's really it was a really great conversation. Thanks for thanks for sharing that with me. Of course. Well, thanks again to Daniel for joining me on the show. I highly encourage you to check out his website to see his wonderful photographs and projects. Head over to danieldietrichphotography.com or check out the show notes for a link. I think what Daniel is doing with Conservation Kids is exactly how we get more people excited about the outdoors while coupling education on how to engage with nature in a responsible way. Thank you to Daniel for taking the lead on such an important mission. Well, we have some exciting shows coming up with some very interesting guests, including Dave Morrow. Dave quit social media in 2018 and hasn't looked back. We talk about how he sustains his business model without it. I had Wayne Suggs and Jerry Greer back on the show to talk about their collaboration on creating Wayne's new book, The Color of Dreams. And lastly, I had Adam Woodworth Adam Woodworth, back on the show to talk, talk about his new night photography book and his adventures in an RV during COVID. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.